Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And this episode is a collection of my most recent posts on parenting. But I've written so many things about parenting, which I'll hopefully turn into later parenting packages. Please check out the blog and look on the contents page for a couple more parenting posts. And there's also a large section in the book, 101 Therapy Talks, filled with short and practical knowledge on effective parenting. The posts I'm going to review in this episode are, first, my letter to parents starting therapy, two, how to put your kids in residential treatment, sort of, three, who's in charge here, parenting in a benevolent monarchy, fourth, they have to go to school, right? And last, did I cause your outcomes? Okay, let's get started. Dear parents, welcome to family therapy. I applaud you for reaching out for help. Though we all know it takes a village to raise a child, it's hard to admit personally that we can't do it on our own. Parenting is the world's most admirable calling, one with arguably the strongest influence on the outcome of a person's life. This is a high-risk, high-reward venture, and it is incredibly courageous of you to be part of it. In therapy, we work from the assumption that you are doing your very best with the knowledge and resources you have. We assume that you love your children unconditionally, even if you don't like them sometimes. At no point should your love or intentions be called into question. If you feel they are, please confront me about it. We are not here to judge you or your parenting. We are here to increase the knowledge and resources you have to help you get better results with your children. There are no perfect parents. We all make mistakes. And there's always something we can do better or try differently. As you learn through sessions and homework assignments, you'll be informed of practices you didn't know before and of things you have done that may be harmful to children and ways your own upbringing have affected your parenting now. This information may not be applicable to all children, but can inform your parenting decisions. It is not wrong to not know what you didn't before or that you may have done something harmful. It is impossible to keep your child's feelings from being hurt. The goal is to make repairs where possible and keep trying to improve relationships. Sometimes we do our best, learn all the parenting research that exists, control our emotions perfectly, and our children still have less than ideal outcomes. This can be heartbreaking and is worth grieving about, but is never worth feeling ashamed of. We must be careful to not judge our worthiness as individuals on our children's outcomes. Though there is much we can do to shape their lives, there are many factors outside of our our control that may lead to crisis or tragedy regardless of our best efforts. Trauma, friendships, cultural influence, the emotional resources we were given by our parents, a child's freedom of choice, genetics, etc. The key point is that your best is enough, and no one can ask more than that. I'm glad you are on this journey, and I'm happy to be a part of it. It can be long and rough for many families, with lots of trial and error, but I'm determined to stick it out with you. You are amazing and inspiring, and I hope to learn from you as we work on this together. Sincerely, Boone Christensen. All right, next up we have how to put your kids in residential treatment. Sort of. How could sending your kids away actually help them? Interesting question. In the short term, kids tend to experience significant changes while at residential treatment centers, or RTCs. They can move from total mental and emotional dysfunction to thriving in 8 to 12 months in such an environment. Unfortunately, the long-term prognosis isn't so great. Children often revert back to old symptoms after they return to old environments. They are likely to retain some gains from residential, but not all. This shows that people's symptoms arise in strong relation to their environment. 
What is it about RTCs then? RTCs aim to apply the basic principles of human development and generally have better resources to do so than many families. First and foremost, they seek to do no harm. The most direct way to induce anxiety, anger, and depression is to use inherently harmful actions or words. Corporal punishment is illegal in most residential settings. Shaming language or anything that is critical, accusatory, insulting, passive-aggressive, or judgmental is detrimental to mental health even if it is accurate. The point is that a child in residential can behave in aggressive, lazy, narcissistic, or victim mentality ways, but never be given the message that they are bad. Though never executed perfectly, this aim of residential treatment makes it different from the experience in most homes. Employees, often in or seeking careers in therapy, without personal connection to the kids in treatment, are less easily distressed by their emotions, and thus less likely to shame children than are their own family members. Employees that feel personally attacked by mentally ill residents usually don't last long in residential treatment. Number two, they cater to the experience of, or rather, they cater the experience to the child's emotional age, not the child's actual age. This means they set boundaries and rewards that allow a child to progress from where they are at, not from where others expect them to be. For example, a 15-year-old may enter a residential treatment center in a depressed state where he will not talk, make eye contact, or perform any tasks besides eating and sleeping, the emotional equivalent of an infant. But there's no pressure to change, just a total lack of rewards. He has unconditional access to food, shelter, and attention, which are basic needs and prerequisites for emotional health for all people. When he isn't shamed or criticized for not talking, not cleaning up after himself, or not doing school, his brain will develop a greater sense of safety. He might start uttering short sentences and making small requests, essentially becoming a toddler. His privileges increase as his brain capacity allows him to perform increasingly complex tasks, like going to his classes, completing easy assignments, and he is eventually allowed the freedom of a six-year-old, for example, being in the game room without supervision. If he breaks a rule, he's not shamed, criticized, or lectured, but restricted to the freedoms that his emotional capacity allows for healthy development, which might be being supervised in the game room for a short period of time. This might be upsetting for him, but it's not damaging, as long as he is given the persistent message that losing privileges is not the same as being bad or unlovable, then his emotions, and that his emotions are allowed to happen, he will feel safe enough to bounce back and keep growing. Just as a side note, there are many ways to unwittingly make someone feel bad or unlovable. Uh, Take a look at the therapeutic interaction model or the steps for more on that. Continuing, there's no rushing this process of residential treatment. This 15-year-old boy may take three months before he talks to his assigned staff members, and maybe six months before he decides to attend class. But at no point is he pushed or told that he has to do anything. The rewards and boundaries speak for themselves. Compelling someone to change before they feel ready sends the message that however they currently are is not good enough for you. This message evokes anxiety and makes someone less likely to make long-term change. When kids and all other animals are allowed to grow up at their own pace, they are at less risk of getting stunted in their growth. The third point is that 
residential treatment centers have the resources to do this. This is the tricky part. Parents can learn about all the principles of human development and their perfect applications, but it's still so much easier said than done. Life happens. We aren't always able to give our children attention when they ask for it, like they could in residential. We can't give them intensive therapy sessions three times a week. We can't enforce our boundaries 24-7 like a team of fresh, constantly rotating residential staff. We can't always withhold our anger and defensiveness. We likely will hurt our kids more than an untriggered trained professional would. Some residential centers have a one-to-one staff-to-client ratio. You might be a single parent, or functionally single, with six kids, all of whom are having a hard time, and your mental health isn't so hot either. So what does all this mean? That we should ship all our kids off to residential treatment? No. Residential may be better for some kids than many home environments, but a well-resourced parent is always better than a well-resourced boarding school. And residential centers may do a poor job of implementing these principles anyway. Just look at you know recent scandals in the news. So how do parents get well-resourced? We have to start where we're at. Maybe your kids are being raised by the TV eight hours a day and getting yelled at by you the rest of the day. That's okay. Things are like this for various reasons, none of which is that you are a bad person or a bad parent. When you take stock of how things are, and why they are, you'll find some compassion for yourself and your situation. With a little self-love, you might have the capacity to yell a little less, give a few more minutes of your attention, and with a little more room to think, you may be able to better identify the things on your plate that can be shuffled around, and the unprocessed traumas unnecessarily weighing you down. Knowing the principles of residential treatment can help us know what to work for, not where we should already be. Kids and parents both need to know that they don't need to change to be, quote, good enough. You are doing the best with what you have. That's all anyone can ask. When shame isn't driving the need to change, change comes naturally and feels good when it does. The next post is called, Who's in Charge Here? Parenting in a Benevolent Monarchy. A key goal in family therapy is increasing communication between parents and children. A common misconception is that listening requires compromise. It does not, but it might lead to healthy compromises. Normally, the most adaptive form of parenting is authoritative, as opposed to authoritarian or permissive. Authoritative refers to a method of both strong validation of all emotions with strong boundaries. I often explain this method as sort of as a sort of benevolent monarchy. Let's consider two kings. One looks over the kingdom and counsels with other monarchs before making decisions, but doesn't listen to the subject since they don't have a vote in the final decisions anyway. The other king proposes laws and decrees across the land and listens to his subjects in court, letting them know that he cares about their individual lives. Then he makes decisions he deems best for the kingdom. The first king is much more likely to have riots from the peasants, which he must either subdue to create a culture of fear, or allow to create a state of anarchy. The second king is much more likely to command the love and respect of his subjects, even if some disagree with his decisions. Most people can go to the court and get their anger out directly at the king, who's not afraid of their feelings and does not belittle them for having feelings. The riots are few and are handled justly, yet firmly, 
as violence and destruction are not tolerated as outlets for anger. Both kings enforce the orders they deem the wisest, but the second has a lot less stress. The second king has the better deal. So why does listening get us better results, even if kids don't really have a vote? First of all, listening to someone and validating their feelings shows that you care about them. If I feel that you care about me, I'm much more likely to accept your decisions as in my best interest, even if I don't agree with you. Secondly, it may be that through listening to me, you gain information that makes you change your decision. For example, imagine a child saying, Mom, I hate school. I don't want to go tomorrow. And mom replying, well, that's not an option. Better get to bed because you got to get good sleep for your test tomorrow. The child shuts down and goes to bed. At face value, this seems like a logical parenting response. Kids have to go to school, right? You may likely still send your kid to school tomorrow, but if you listen, you might learn something. Child, mom, I hate school. I don't want to go tomorrow. Mom, oh, tell me what's up. What makes you hate it? Child, Everyone is mean to me. Mom, tell me about that. Child, they always push me during recess, then laugh at me. I hate them and I don't want to go. Mom, wow, that sounds really tough, honey. Could I talk to your teacher about it? So you're not sure if this story is real or exaggerated, but you validate the feelings and email the teacher, who checks on your child during recess and finds him alone and crying in a corner with some scuffs on his jeans. It turns out your undersized little boy is actually getting harassed. You work with the teacher to take action. Because you waited on an executive decision until after you listened and gathered more information, you were able to address a real problem. Now, your child is more likely to come to you the next time something hard happens. You might have found that he is struggling with math and needs help, or having trouble seeing and needs glasses, or that the teacher is saying inappropriate things to the kids. Who knows what you'll find? But shutting down the conversation or arguing when you hear something you don't agree with will keep your child from coming to you and could allow a problem to build up to something worse. Example number two. You find your teen snuck out after you told her she would lose driving privileges if she did it again. She said that she was just hanging out with friends the previous times, so you decided a boundary was appropriate. But instead of directly enforcing the boundary by saying, you know you lose your keys this time, you decide to do some listening first. Parent, I saw on the security camera that you left the house last night. Do you want to talk about it? Child, no. Parent, okay. I'm sure you knew I would find out and take your privileges, but you still went out. I'm wondering if you're having a hard time with something right now. Child starts crying. Do you promise you won't yell at me? Parent takes a big breath. (sighs) I promise. Child, Jenny wants to kill herself. You continue listening and hear a story of how an unhealthy friend has been manipulating your teenager for attention, and it's causing her intense anxiety. You decide that grounding her would not actually be helpful in this situation, so instead, you help her talk through her feelings and implement some boundaries with that friend. So, consider how you're running your kingdom. Are you making executive decisions without any input? Are you heading a democracy dominated by the loud voice of the subjects? Are your subjects sweet talkers or manipulators? What might be preventing you from ruling gracefully? Are you too anxious to make a decision that could make someone upset? Are you rigidly tied to rules that prioritize principles over relationships and mental health? For example, always being on time, always going to school, always doing an A-plus job, etc. 
Are you afraid that listening and validating enables negative thoughts or behavior? If that last one is the case, just know that boundaries alone produce short-term positive behaviors, but long-term mental illness and symptomatic behavior. Validation alone enables negative behaviors while maintaining a relationship, which can also lead to unnecessary trauma. The consistent input of both, not a compromise of both, gives us the best chance of positive behavior in the short term and stable mental health in the long term. So, find out what keeps you from listening, validating, and setting useful boundaries. Address that, then you can reign justly and benevolently over your subjects and reduce your stress. All right. This last one is called, They Have to Go to School, Right? One of my greatest frustrations in family therapy is the pressure of sending kids to school. Don't get me wrong, I think education is awesome, but it shouldn't be used as a bludgeon to our mental health, which we actually need to become educated. Our mental health, that is. So how does this happen? One reason is, ironically, the lack of education. If a kid is having an urge to not go to school, there is a real reason for it, one that isn't a character flaw. Most of the time, there are serious issues going on outside of academics, such as marital conflict, bullying, friend tension, feeling misunderstood, etc. When these stressors build up, they'll first make us anxious. We enter fight-or-flight brain, where logic and learning capacity decrease. We enter survival mode, when we do just enough to get by with the bare minimum. This is a hard state to go to school in, but it's manageable. As a footnote, and even if it was just about not feeling prepared for a test, seeing a crush, or avoiding some friend drama, these are valid emotions and must be processed, not stuffed or invalidated. Continuing, when the stressors become overwhelming, the brain system gets flooded and we enter freeze mode, where we lose almost all cognitive and emotional function and become unmotivated, lifeless bodies that can pretty much just breathe and maintain a pulse. You've seen these kids in class. They might be able to pass with D minuses by coming to school and vegging out in the back of the room, but they definitely aren't learning anything. Many parents think, well, it would be better just to push through till they graduate, right? I can't make calls for all situations, but I'm just not seeing this method work out long term. A high school diploma means nothing if it involved little or no learning. A frayed relationship with parents and abysmal mental health for a teen who now has trouble launching because the problems are still there. Graduating with D's doesn't set kids up to get better. It's just a band-aid for parents' anxiety. So, what does this mean? Again, I think kids should go to school, but think they should go to school with all the necessary tools, including the part of the brain that can actually learn. This means that, if kids say or act like they don't want to go, we don't force them to get bludgeoned by logic and learning when it won't do any good. This just makes it worse. What we can do is have boundaries in place to make sure a mental health day actually has its intended effects. Staying home is an indicator of poor health, which means we need to create a healing environment. People recover best from emotional distress without distractions, like social media, video games, TV, etc. This allows us to spend time with our thoughts and feelings and to work through them, rather than avoid them. Being out in nature can be helpful. Being around people who aren't judging you for taking a mental health day is key. 
Having others around to help you work through emotions without fixing, lecturing, persuading, or arguing makes all the difference. If you are made to feel like a bad person for feeling mentally ill and thus unproductive, it is much harder to recover. This is actually the hardest part for parents. Once I teach them the brain science behind this, they usually agree, but their own emotions keep them freaking out about their kids taking time off to treat emotions. They continue to nag, shame, and push, and suggest without setting the recommended boundaries. They then complain that my suggestions don't work. When I take time to explore this anxiety parents feel, I often find experiences where these parents were never allowed to have emotions or pain or illness. They just stuffed them hard to stay productive, and now they have a phobia of other people not doing the same. And as well as other symptoms of suppressed emotion. You might see that post on covert depression. These parents must often process their own trauma before I can expect them to be helpful to their children. But when kids are allowed to work through their emotions without getting the message that they are bad, lazy, or irresponsible for going through a natural healing process, or that getting a GED, graduating late, or seeking a vocational calling will lead to the apocalypse, they are likely to be mentally healthy, and thus more likely to feel motivated to learn. This last post is called, Did I Cause Your Outcomes? As we learn from another post called, Did I Cause Your Feelings? It is both possible to contribute to someone's feelings and not be responsible for them. The same goes for someone's actions or outcomes. For example, you might punch someone, which leads them to punch you. If you hadn't punched first, they likely would not have punched back. We can say you caused a fight. However, we cannot say that you are responsible for your adversary's decision to punch you. They were not forced to fight back and have the ability to choose their own actions. The same goes for outcomes, such as ending up in jail, developing mental illness, getting divorced, etc. Kids with parents who are divorced, mentally ill, incarcerated, or emotionally distant are at greater risk of developing similar circumstances as adults. But are parents responsible for those outcomes? I use the term responsible to mean that parents should be blamed, should feel ashamed, and their value as a parent should be evaluated based on the outcomes of the children. But I assert that parents are not responsible for outcomes, and here's why. Point one, people's responses are beyond your ultimate control. If I take away my child's car keys because he broke the rules and he reacts by overdosing on heroin, am I responsible for his actions? People's responses are uncertain. I never would have known that my son would react that way. I did my best to deliver the consequences in a gentle and loving manner, but it still produced an extreme outcome. If I had known some better way to do it, perhaps informed by the parenting research that comes out next year, I'm sure I would have done that. Even if I yelled and spanked my kids because that's all I knew from my own upbringing, I still wouldn't be responsible for the outcomes. Even if the research shows generally negative effects of these violent behaviors for children, I cannot predict how any individual will be affected. And again, if I had better parenting resources, I would have used them. Even if a response is predictable, I have a right to decide whether my actions are just. If you threaten to kill yourself if I break up with you, I do, and you end up going through with that, am I responsible for your death? No because I have a right to make relationship decisions independently of your actions. 
I can feel sad for your loss, but I don't have to blame myself for it. Many children who are severely abused by parents rise above their trauma to become productive contributors to society. Can their parents claim responsibility for those positive outcomes? Is it fair that they could only take responsibility for the outcomes if they were poor? No. Conversely, should a parent who implemented the best parenting research available with the purest precision and empathy be held responsible if their child ends up dealing drugs? No. Lastly, if you believe in God, and that God is a parent, then God is a mediocre parent, at best, if we are basing our evaluation on children's outcomes. But all this is not to say that parents should not keep trying to be helpful and should not feel proud of their children's positive outcomes and not feel grief with their child's less positive outcomes. The point is that parents are responsible for doing the best with what they have. This doesn't mean giving all you have to the point of martyrdom, which isn't helpful for anyone, but working toward an appropriate balance of self-sacrifice and self-care, which will teach your kids to do the same. That's all anyone can ask. And if parents find they have hurt or influenced their child in some regretful way, they should try their best to make repairs, but should not feel shame for parental inadequacy. And who gets to judge if someone did the best with what they have? You might think that we could judge this ourselves, about ourselves, but I find that many people have an inaccurate evaluation of their own character. They judge themselves unfairly. If you believe in an all-knowing being, I think that that person would be the only fair judge. So what can we do? We need to give indiscriminate compassion to ourselves and others. Even if you had an accurate view of how hard you tried, it would not be a heavy dose of shame that would motivate you to improve and make repairs with your kids, but compassion. As a footnote, this same principle applies to all relationships. As a therapist, I'm responsible for doing my best to help someone and repairing if I hurt someone's feelings. But if I take responsibility for all the bad things that happen in people's lives, I discount their agency, feel shame for myself, and sometimes make them feel like I'm responsible for their actions, which just hurts everyone. As a final thought, it isn't logical to beat ourselves up for kids' negative outcomes or gloat over their successes. They are ultimately responsible for themselves. But logic aside, you may still feel parenting shame. This is not something people are born with. You were made to feel responsible for people's actions and outcomes at some point in your life. And the message sunk in, not because it's true, but because it felt true. So, think about that. How did this message get internalized? Who sent it, either directly or implicitly? What experiences did you have where the false message felt true? We can call this a form of trauma, but like all traumas, it can be healed. So, those are all the posts for today's package, but there's so much more to say. And I found that the most important component in your parenting is your own health. Go back and listen to episode 3 on the basics of mental illness to learn about how to better maintain your parenting capacity by maintaining your mental health and episode one about the STEPS model for even more details on effective parenting interactions. Thank you so much.